All right, for tonight, we're going to begin the book of Philippians. Tonight will be a lot of background information as we introduce the book. So bear with me as we go through all of this. Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. They then return to Jerusalem to give a report, and afterwards they go back to their home church of Antioch. It isn't long that they're there that Paul looks at Barnabas and says, hey, we need to go back out there and see how the churches are doing, see how things are going. And so he, he's ready to hit the road again. And he says this in Acts 15, 36, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And it was at that time that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along. And Paul had his reservations because John Mark had left their company on the first missionary journey to come back to Jerusalem. And Paul has some hesitation. In fact, I would would say it was more than hesitation because he and Barnabas had a contention, the Bible says, that was so sharp that they uh, parted ways. They parted asunder, I think is what the Bible says. And Barnabas takes John Mark. They go their way. I, I believe they went to Cyprus. And then Paul takes Silas. Silas being recommended by the brethren Paul takes Silas with him and they depart through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. So long story short, they continued going through several cities until they came to a place called Mysia, where they essayed to go into Bithynia. Instead, it was that night that Paul received what we call the Macedonian call. He had a vision from the Lord to go over into Macedonia They understanding that this was of the Lord, they immediately endeavored to go there. To kind of help you understand this, in modern countries, they were at Troas at the time and and they saw the vision, or Paul did, and Troas would be on the western coast of Turkey. And then they sailed over to Macedonia, which is modern day Greece. I know that probably didn't help many of you who are geographically challenged. (laughs) And by the way, all these areas were under Roman control. And once in Macedonia, they came to the chief city of that part of Macedonia, which was called Philippi. And just in case any may be wondering, Caesarea Philippi and Philippi are two different locations. Caesarea Philippi was located in Israel, while this one obviously was in Macedonia. Paul's custom was to go to a new city, he would go to the synagogue and he would seek out the Jews and he would try to convert them. But he gets to Philippi and they have no synagogue. It was a, a big place for the Romans and so they were under persecution there and they had no place to meet. And I guess maybe it wasn't that unusual to not have a place to meet when they would travel like this. and Because the Bible makes mention that they went to the riverside and it says where prayer was wont to be made. And so there must have been some sort of a custom that if you didn't have a synagogue or something like that, you would typically meet in this kind of area outside of the 
the city where you had more freedom to worship. And it was there at the riverside where Paul spoke unto the women which had gathered there. And they were doing the best they could to walk in the light of God that they knew. But no one had really been there to take them further along in their Christianity. And so they worshipped God, but they didn't have a complete understanding of it all. And it was from these women that Paul won Lydia to Christ. And they became uh, friends in the ministry because immediately following that, Lydia, she's born again, she's baptized, and the Bible says she constrained them to come to her house. Because when they arrived in Philippi, they had no means to stay with them. They didn't know anybody. So they were staying on their own dime. And you can imagine what a help that would have been to Paul and Silas to have a place to go to help fray the cost of all of this. And it was there in Philippi. So that's, that's the humble beginning there of this church. Uh, Paul wins Lydia to the Lord. Paul, and so I don't know if any other women there were, but the Bible makes special mention of Lydia. And it was there in Philippi where there was a damsel or a bondservant And she was possessed with a spirit of divination. And she followed after Paul and Silas. Do you remember this account? And she would would cry out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. Finally, Paul becomes grieved at the fact that this woman's doing this over and over again. And he looks at her and he says to the spirit within her, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And I don't want to get stuck here preaching the book of Acts and introducing Philippians, but you may wonder, how was this woman possessed by a demonic spirit but saying things that were true? It was true that Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God. And it was also true that they were showing the way of salvation. There's a lot of things we we can draw out of that account, which we will whenever we get there and study it in depth sometime in the future. But for now, I'll just say I believe at the heart of the problem was this woman crying after them because she had this divination. Um, She was a soothsayer. And because she had this, I believe her crying this out was grieving Paul because it was almost syncretizing these two religions. And God will never share His glory with another. And so it became a problem because she's obviously possessed with a spirit uh, that needed to be cast out. And when we try to blend everything together, we get in trouble. And and there's religions that do that today. I remember the first time, remember we were door knocking in Mississippi and we came to this lady's house who was very nice, invited us in, and she was of the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you've ever heard of that religion. Very strange. She had in her possession every book that you could think of. She had a, she had a Bible. She had a Book of Mormon. She had the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. She had a Koran. She had all these different texts from different religions, and they just combined them all together and saying, we're all reaching for the greater good. And so I know God has an issue with that. And so I believe that's the reason why she may have been saying something right, but it wasn't of the Lord. Well, that was a major problem when Paul cast the demon out of her. 
because she was giving her, she was, her masters were getting great gain from her, the Bible says. She was making them money by her divination. And so her masters, they take hold of Paul and Silas. They're upset with them and they take them into the marketplace and they bring them before the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. So they got a big problem here. And in Acts 6, uh, 16 verses 22 and 24, the Bible says, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And that beating was a beating with rods. When it says commanded to beat them, this was not a scourging with a whip, but this was a beating with a rod. I would probably liken it to maybe what Singapore still does when they cane people. In other countries, they still do canings. It's very painful. In fact, it's so painful. I mean, when Paul is telling the Corinthians of what all he's been through, he says, thrice was I beaten with rods. And this, that would have been one of those occasions there in Philippi. And so a very painful thing to endure. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. And so Paul mentions to the Thessalonians, look, uh, Philippians weren't very good to us. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And he meant it. He had the stripes. He had the scars. He had been beaten. And then he also says, I, received, I did receive the scourgings as well. And so, what's our problem? Well, somebody may not like me too much. I have that problem, and I'm a nice guy. Uh, I'm just saying, look, we, we complain about so much. And, and we've not been beaten. Nobody's taken cane across our back. Nobody's scourged us. As far as I know, none of us in here have been imprisoned for our faith. So here's Paul. He, he's sticking with it. Well, you're familiar with what happens next. Paul and Silas are in the jail, and at midnight they begin to pray. And then they begin to sing. And they sang loud enough that the Bible says the whole jail could hear them singing. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately the doors were all open and everyone's bands were loosed. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Well, the keeper of the prison knows he's in hot water. So he takes out his sword. He's going to kill himself. And Paul says, no, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And so they go in. The jailer goes in. He sees Paul and Silas. He brings them out. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so the jailer, he receives Christ as his Savior. Another man is converted there in Philippi. And the jailer brings Paul and Silas back to his house. He washes their, their wounds. And everybody in the house who received Christ, all of them were baptized. And then they had a meal together. Well, this whole event at the jail must have spooked the town. Which I think we all could imagine. Word was traveling fast. And the magistrates 
These are the Roman authorities. The magistrates, they send sergeants to the keeper of the prison who instruct him. He says, or they say to the jailer, you go tell Paul and Silas that we're letting them go and they need to depart. You ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here. And so they want them out of the town. That didn't sit well with Paul. (laughs) He didn't care for how the magistrates were handling this whole situation. And so Paul basically says, I don't think so. We're not leaving like this. And it seems to me that Paul had a feistiness about his Roman citizenship. He invokes it a couple times at least. And I wonder if it isn't about time that we Americans get the same feistiness about our citizenship. Paul says, They have beaten us openly uncondemned being Romans and have cast us into prison and now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. (laughs) So the sergeants, they go and tell the magistrates saying, well, they're not going for it. They want you to come. And once the magistrates found out that they were Romans, they were in fear because they had beaten a man without trial, uncondemned, and now they're fearing. And so the magistrates, they did as Paul said they should do. You know, it's amazing sometimes if we just stand up and speak up, what can happen? You know, a lot of things are allowed in the public schools that they say aren't. It's just a matter of people standing up and saying, oh, I don't think so. And so he stands up for this, and the magistrates, they're now in fear, and so... They come, and the Bible says, they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. So that word desired means now they're not commanding them to leave, but they're asking nicely. Could you please leave our city? (laughs) Well, they left. They first go back to Lydia's house, and they meet with the brethren that are there, the Bible says. They comforted them. They departed Philippi. And they continued their missionary journey. Now, I wanted to give you all that background to say, as we begin to look into the book of Philippians, that you can, you can bet that for Paul, it was important to him that there was a good church in Philippi. He'd gone through a lot there. From very humble beginnings to casting out a demon to being beaten and imprisoned, then miraculously set free shortly after midnight, to pressuring the Roman magistrates Paul was heavily invested in Philippi. And that brings us to the letter to the Philippians. We don't have exact dates, but I don't think I would be out of line to say that it has been roughly 10 years from what took place in Philippi to the writing of this letter. And like Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this letter to the Philippians was written by Paul while under house arrest in Rome. And after all that Paul had been through in Philippi, he wants this church in in Philippi to be a, a strong church. And thankfully, that's exactly what we'll find as we study this epistle. Paul doesn't have to write to them like he does to the Corinthians and the Galatians correcting doctrine. There's there's not 
there's no major doctrinal corrections here. This was a church that was birthed in a city that hated Christians. It was a city of unbelievers. It was a city full of idolatry. And as we've already discussed, it was a city where there were those who were possessed by demons. But even through trials and tribulations and severe persecutions, this church excelled. In many ways, this church in Philippi was an ideal church. It's an example to believers. And we'll see how even under times of persecution, it's possible to live godly and remain unified and stay true to pure doctrine. And it's in this letter we find so many familiar verses that we all know. I'm going to give you just a sampling and keep in mind verses surrounding these verses. It's a very well-known book, I believe, by a Wednesday night crowd. It says in Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Philippians 4.6, be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Philippians 4.8, finally brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And then Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is a very well-known book. A lot of verses we like to hang on walls and stuff like that come from what Paul wrote to the Philippians. And there are several ways to describe this letter, and you can find many good opinions out there. Uh, Some will say this is a book of encouragement. Just encouraging believers, stay with it. A book of endurance. You can make it through the persecutions, the trials, and the tribulations. And some will say it's a book of humility. Paul talks about how whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. And, And so there's a lot of ways you could classify this book. I would say most will say that this book is a book of joy. We'll see the word rejoice used ten times. The word joy used six times. And one thing's for sure, this letter to the Philippians is all about Christ. We'll see that Christ is our life. Christ is our example. Christ is our prize. And Christ is our strength. Now, with that as an introduction, let's just cover the first two verses tonight quickly. The Bible says in Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul 
and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with only slight variations, Paul uses verse 2 in all of his writings. It's not an uncommon thing that he would write there. He wants them all to experience grace and peace. And I guess what would be important with that is Paul recognizes who is the giver of grace and peace. It's from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll never appreciate the depth of grace until you experience God's grace. God's grace is bestowing upon us that which we don't deserve. And we don't deserve any of God's goodness. And yet by His grace, He bestows it upon us nonetheless. We know it is only by grace we are saved through faith. It's by God's grace we are justified. And thank God that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. We're not saved by our goodness, but salvation can only be given by God's grace. Salvation is a free gift, which means we cannot work for it. We cannot earn it. Therefore, any teaching to the contrary must be discarded. I know that's not a nice thing to say today. It's too narrow-minded. But that means the JWs, the Mormons, the Catholics, we can go on and on. They're wrong. It's a free gift. And so any teaching contrary to that, we must reject. Now, what stands out in the opening here compared to Paul's other epistles is found in verse 1. Or maybe I should say not found. What Paul does not say in verse 1, that he says in all his other letters, with the exception of First and Second Thessalonians and his letter to Philemon, and I kind of classify that one a little bit different because it's such a personal letter. It's not really on church doctrine. But in every other epistle, Paul refers to himself as an apostle. And we don't see that here in his letter to the Philippians. He calls himself a servant. He calls himself a servant in other epistles. And we've covered that before. A servant means that he considers himself a bond slave to Christ. And by not mentioning the fact that he's an apostle, some will say, and and I kind of lean with this, some say that what this is a sign of is that this church had their act together. That he's not going into this magnifying his office as the apostle to the Gentile, so that he can say, look, I have authority to correct where you're wrong. But in this case, he doesn't mention that he's an an apostle. And so the the thinking here is is that uh, this church probably had their act together, that they were right doctrinally, and that Paul doesn't have to come in here and blast it like he does with Galatia, where he's got to say, look, you're saved by faith alone, because they had corrupted the way of salvation. And he doesn't have to go in there and talk about major doctrinal issues like he did to the Corinthians. And say, look, you know what you really need? You just need charity. You don't need to worry about tongues. That's the least of the gifts you should desire. And Paul, he, he doesn't have the, the, the need to do that here. And so um, he also, in addition to that thought, in the opening here that's different, is it's the only time that when he's writing to a church, he writes to the bishops and the deacons as well. He not only addresses this epistle to all saints, but he also mentions the bishops and the deacons. And indicating here that this church had right leadership in place. 
When a church has right leadership in place, there'll be right doctrine. And this isn't to say that people won't enter in with bad doctrine. That's great if they do, so long as they're seeking. But good leadership deals with it properly. Of course, the hope is always to correct bad doctrine, win them. That's the hope. But sometimes you've got to drive out the wolves that are in sheep's clothing. And I'm thankful as I thought about this in studying this, how blessed we are in our church to have good people leading different ministries that are doctrinally sound. And I know a lot of that came from Pastor Williams and his labor in the Word, and, and, and I hope I'm continuing that well in your sight, but we have people in place that are leading different uh, ministries, different classrooms, different areas of our church, our deacons. We've got leadership in place that uh, they're doctrinally sound, and we ought to thank God for that. And it keeps us from being divided. It keeps us from not being... I mean, it keeps us unified when we all have right doctrine and we don't have this infighting and bickering that we have to deal with. So I'm thankful for that, and you ought to be as well. And we must continue to be a people of the Bible who are adherents to good doctrine and never compromise the truth of God's Word for the sake of pleasing others. Now, we don't have to be ugly and rude about that. If it ever comes to that, you let me do that. But we don't have to be ugly and rude about it, but we must, we must always be right in the eyes of God. And so this letter here, it's, more, it's going to be more of an expression of Paul's love for them, his gratitude for them. He's writing to his friends in the ministry. And you can bet he's glad this church is still standing strong in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This letter is one of appreciation and joy for this church. And may our church always strive to be right doctrinally and supportive of those out of other churches who are right doctrinally. Our city depends on us being structured right, being doctrinally right. We are a dying breed. I can count on one hand the amount of churches still using the King James. And for some of you, that may not be a big issue, but for me, it's a die-on-the-hill issue. And we're fading out. And I believe this city needs a demonstration of true Christianity. Not that those other ones are... That came out wrong. Look, I'm not against those other churches. I hope you, I hope you understand what I'm saying. Um, but I just want to have that bar of holiness where it ought to be. And, and so our city is dependent upon us being unified as well. And understand, our missionaries are depending upon us. And we can't fail them. If we go under, they lose support. They may not can stay on the field. And we saw the Hetzers tonight. And, and, all these, and he, he mentioned how money becomes an issue. You can imagine. And so, unfortunately, that's a part of it all. I know people hate hearing about money, but the reality is you can't live without it either. And so our city is depending on us, our missionaries are depending on us, and I believe this is going to be a great study. I'm really looking forward to how God is going to direct us through this study and work in our hearts and um, stay faithful to Wednesday night. So let's pray, and then we're going to quickly go to our financial meeting.